0: If you've ever tried to write a story by coming up with a great title first, and then developing the narrative around that title, then you probably know what it's like to suddenly realize the two are nowhere near the same. The creative process takes us all over the place, over hills and through valleys that we never imagined we'd encounter when we first set out to explore. By the end of that journey, we are very rarely where we expected to arrive. But we do arrive somewhere, and of course it's possible that our actual destination is even better than the one we intended to visit. Perhaps this is just human nature to justify our decisions by making the most out of where they've led us, or maybe the old saying has some truth to it, it's about the journey, not the destination. It's unlikely that when Dan Aykroyd was born in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada in 1952, there was any expectation that he would one day be one of the most prolific comedic actors of his time. Likewise, young Daniel found himself immersed in the paranormal, the family business as he puts it now, with a spiritualist great-grandfather, a father who experimented with radios to contact the dead, and so on. But what he would eventually do with that heritage was well out of reach in those years. Someday later, and after many many rewrites with some good friends, Ackroyd would be the first to ask what would eventually be a siren song for untold legions of fans of the supernatural, the pseudo-scientific, and everything in between. If there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you gonna call? I'm Hunter Hendricks, welcome to the Inquest. On October 11, 1975, television viewers got their very first taste of the not ready for primetime players. For many years prior, NBC had been airing reruns of Johnny Carson's illustrious talk show on the weekends. But when Carson decided to scale back his schedule, the network turned to producer Lorne Michaels to fill their Saturday night airtime. What Michaels gave them in return was a high-concept sketch comedy show that wasn't just a hit, it was a televised tour de force so powerful that it remains on the air to this day. At the time, it was simply called NBC's Saturday Night, but these days it's better recognized as Saturday Night Live. Over its 40-year-plus tenure, SNL has become a cultural touchstone and a veritable breeding ground for some of Hollywood's most well-known comedic actors. The hallowed halls of Studio 8H at 30 Rockefeller Plaza have been home to such notable names as Eddie Murphy, Adam Sandler, Mike Myers, Will Ferrell, and Tina Fey, the latter of which got her starred as a writer behind the scenes before moving into the show's actual cast. As she was following in well-tread footsteps by doing so. The pioneer who came before her in that regard? Dan Aykroyd himself. For $278 a week, Aykroyd wrote sketches for SNL leading up to its inaugural season, but just before the show's fall premiere date, he was added to the principal cast of repertory players as well. It was the right move. Ackroyd brought the kind of manic energy that the show needed, which, when combined with his frankly counterintuitive professionalism, made him a bona fide ace in the hole for SNL as it found its footing. Of course, those traits also led him to become one of the show's biggest breakout stars, and by 1979, the then 27-year-old Ackroyd left Saturday nights in New York City for sunny days in Hollywood. The five years that followed were a bit of a roller coaster for the newly minted leading man, as Aykroyd started in everything from mostly forgotten footnotes like 1941 and Neighbors to veritable classics like Trading Places, and of course, the Blues Brothers. Over that period of time, Aykroyd wasn't just refining his acting chops and establishing himself as a comedic powerhouse, he was also still writing. Blues Brothers was actually his first attempt at creating a feature-length script, but by his own admission, Aykroyd was out of his element. The resulting tome of lore about a pair of black-suited musicians on a mission from God that he and John Belushi had made famous on SNL resembled a phone book, and reportedly was about as readable. Director John Landis took on the job of additional editing and co-writing what Ackroyd had put onto paper, and the end result would speak for itself as a massive box office success. This would soon prove to be a winning formula for Ackroyd, having a co-writer to help shape his occasionally outlandish concepts into something more filmable. And it was one that would then follow him into his most notable turn on the big screen, driving on the white-walled tires of a beat-up 1959 Cadillac Miller Meteor Sentinel Ambulance with one of cinema's most iconic license plates, Ecto-1. The multiverse theory is so prevalent in popular culture, it's unlikely you've never heard of it, but just so we're all on the same page, it goes like this. Throughout the never-ending expanses of space and time, there are an infinite number of universes, meaning every possible deviation in our known history exists somewhere. For example, there's a universe out there where the dinosaurs weren't wiped out by an extinction-level event. Another where the Vikings colonized the Americas when they originally discovered them. And still another where, say, the McRib is just a regular menu item at McDonald's. Ironically, if this theory is correct, it means that there also exists a universe where 1984's Ghostbusters is a science fiction romp through many of those alternate dimensions to hunt down intergalactic foes, and it stars Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, and Eddie Murphy as the titular team. That's because this is how Ackroyd initially pitched the project to eventual director Ivan Reitman when they met for lunch in Los Angeles to discuss it. Indeed, the Ghostbusters that Ackroyd had outlined was something of a kitchen sink setup. He had taken inspiration from the supernatural buddy comedies of his youth, films helmed by such greats as Bob Hope and Abbott and Costello, and then mashed those ideas up against his own interest in the unusual, paranormal research, extraterrestrial encounters, and so on. In this version of the film, the Ghostbusters were extremely futuristic, capable of traveling through the cosmos to battle interdimensional threats of all shapes and sizes with their far-flung high-tech equipment. The result was interesting in concept, but just too much for execution, and Reitman told Ackroyd as much. He wasn't entirely down on the film though, Ackroyd had struck some chords that piqued the director's interest, such as the idea of the eponymous team being perceived as a service business. If one needed to eliminate a roach problem, for example, they would call the Exterminator, but if they had a poltergeist, they'd call the Ghostbusters. In fact, that was Reitman's drumbeat as he suggested changes to Ackroyd's abstraction, bring it back down to earth. Not only was this in service of bettering the script, but Reitman was also being practical. Mentally, he projected Ackroyd's grandiose version of Ghostbusters would cost over $200 million to make and no studio on this planet or any other would approve that kind of budget in the early 80s. Reitman made another major suggestion for Ghostbusters around this time, one that would pay off in a big way as the project progressed. Get Harold Ramis involved. Reitman had worked with Ramis on the set of 1981's Stripes, an army buddy comedy in which Ramis starred alongside a cavalcade of other funny men, including John Candy, John Larrakat, and another soon-to-be Ghostbuster, but we'll get back to him soon enough. Importantly, Ramus had also co-written *Stripes* with Reitman, and Reitman felt that Ramus could not only better match the tone Ackroyd intended for *Ghostbusters* than Reitman himself, but Ramus should also be a Ghostbuster in the film. Fortunately, Ramus agreed. The three men and their families made the journey to Ackroyd's home in Martha's Vineyard, and for two weeks they worked tirelessly to iron out the script and polish it to perfection. By this time, Belushi had sadly passed away, and Murphy was committed to another major product of the 80s, Beverly Hills Cop, which left Ackroyd and Ramis as only two of the three, or as it would eventually become four, leading cast members for Ghostbusters. Don't forget, there was still that other guy who had worked with Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman on Stripes to bring it into the fold. He'd also collaborated with Ramis on the massive 1979 country club comedy Caddyshack, And as it turned out, he had previously crossed paths with Ackroyd back in their Saturday Night Live days as well. By now, you've probably guessed it was time to cast the most recognizable face of the Ghostbusters, Bill Murray. At its heart, the original Ghostbusters is a quintessential New York period piece. The City That Never Sleeps is as much a character in the film as it is its setting, with legendary locales like the New York Public Library and its Marble Lion statues dominating the opening scenes. 55 Central Park West still very much resembles Spook Central, where the climactic battle of the movie takes place, and Hook and Ladder number 8, the Tribeca firehouse that served as the exterior representation of the Ghostbusters headquarters is so associated with the film to this day that its occupants have embraced the series fandom and incorporated the famous No Ghost logo into their own. But of course, it's the characters and their journey that really encapsulate New York City's gritty, hectic mid 80s ambiance. And what better way to do so than through a trio of fringe academics tossed out onto their butts and left to fend for themselves in the private sector? This is where doctors Stance, Spengler, and Venkman come in, portrayed respectively, if not always respectfully, by Ackroyd, Ramus, and Murray. Ray Stance is clearly the heart of the Ghostbusters, the lovable believer who's just happy to be there. Egon Spengler then is the brains and he has them in spades, so much so in fact there isn't much room for social capability in his head, and that's why Peter Venkman is considered to be the mouth of the group, a smooth talker who always knows just what to say even if he shouldn't always say it. They're sent packing from their cushy university jobs after tarnishing the good name of the institution with pseudoscience, mostly Bankman's fault and, for the record, the aforementioned college is actually Columbia, but it's never named in the film, which was a condition of using one of its halls as a shooting location. Fortunately for the erstwhile professors, they reach a major milestone just before their firing, figuring out how to catch ghosts. And because it's the 80s, their path forward is clear, get a loan, buy triple mortgaging Ray's childhood home, and start a small business. Soon business is booming for the eponymous busters, so much so that expansion is necessary and it comes in the form of new hire Winston Zetamore, played by Ernie Hudson. Now, In early drafts of the script, Zeddemore was more than just the everyman of the team, he was a former military man and a demolitions expert, giving the newcomer something to counterbalance his lack of a PhD when compared to his comrades. Sadly, Hudson's role was diminished in the first film, at the studio's request to make room for more scenes with Murray, then viewed as the project's star, but as we'll discuss later, Winston would still become a fan favorite in the Ghostbusters initial outing and go on to be one of the only remaining members in future installments. The supporting cast is nothing short of star-studded, touting such heavy hitters as Annie Potts, Sigourney Weaver, and Rick Moranis. Potts plays Janine Melnitz, the fast-talking, take-no-prisoner secretary running the day-to-day Ghostbusters operations and further personifying New York City. Weaver, meanwhile, takes on the role of Dana Barrett, Venkman's love interest and a part-time demonic entity who could easily have been miscast as a damsel in distress had anyone else been in her shoes. And finally, Moranis portrays Louis Tully, an accountant and Dana's neighbor who also gets caught up in spectral activity against his will. All of this is to say nothing of William Atherton's loathsome EPA inspector Walter Peck, who isn't even the film's biggest villain, but still manages to be more hateable than most of them. As the Ghostbusters get better at their jobs, the film builds to its climax atop Lewis and Dana's apartment building, where the team must contend with an ancient Sumerian god and its avatar, a hundred foot tall marshmallow mascot conjured up by Rey inadvertently, which, believe it or not, somehow managed to survive from the initial drafts all the way to the one that was captured on celluloid. In the end, they save the day by crossing the streams, Venkman gets the girl, and everyone goes home happy. Even Winston, who gets the movie's last line and an appropriate one for this love letter to New York, quote, I love this town. It's all a surprisingly simple setup, and really that's what works so well about Ghostbusters. The mashing together of science fiction, horror, and comedy into a genre-defying film could have been a recipe for disaster. Remember Aykroyd's original bloated script? But instead, Ghostbusters puts on a masterclass explaining what needs to be explained and letting the audience fill in the blanks on the rest. For example, very specific details are given about how and why Gozer the Gozerian has appeared, but the team's equipment is mostly hand-waved for the sake of simplicity. Sure, the packs are occasionally referred to as everything from unlicensed nuclear accelerators to positron colliders, but it doesn't really matter how they work, they look cool, and more importantly, they look real. Ultimately, Reitman's suggestion of grounding the concept pays off. The more fantastical elements of the film, like its tech, the spirits, and so on, are much more interesting against a background of realism than they would have been across multiple universes in the distant future. Now, Careful listeners will likely have noted something interesting. 1984's Ghostbusters really doesn't lend itself well to any sort of continuation. Gozer is forced back to the nearest convenient parallel dimension, Stay Puft is incinerated, and... Dana and Lewis, along with the rest of the city, county, and state of New York are saved from the forces beyond the veil. So then where could the Ghostbusters go from there? It takes an awful lot of temerity to ask a major motion picture house to finance a sci-fi horror comedy about nearly middle-aged paranormal exterminators. But that edges into audacity when in the wake of that film's massive success and the studio's request for a sequel, one decides to treat their newfound heroes as mostly unsuccessful schlubs once more. 1989's Ghostbusters 2 wastes little time in establishing just that. The Busters are bust. well, Mostly, anyway. While Ray and Winston try to keep the company afloat by making appearances at children's birthday parties where they are derided for not being He-Man, Peter has parlayed his schmoozing style of charm into hosting a local AXIS television show about dubious psychics, and Egon has returned to the scientific research that itself may be a bit dubious. But after becoming the saviors of humanity at the end of the previous film, what could have possibly happened over a mere five years to put the Ghostbusters in such a lowly state? Well, that depends on how you approach the subject. From within the film, or from outside in the real world. Internally, the story is characteristically straightforward. Paranormal activity has plummeted. After the events of the original film, it's implied the team cleaned up the mess from the containment unit's explosion, and then, well, not much else happened. With fewer and fewer ghost sightings, and thus need for removal, the necessity of the Ghostbusters lessened. Couple this with conspiracy theorists who ran with Walter Peck's thread that the Ghostbusters were con men peddling an elaborate light show and mass hypnosis to scam people out of their hard-earned money which led to extravagant lawsuits for damages to city property. And it's obvious why the team is back to square one. Externally, however, things were a bit more complicated. The primary issue was that Ghostbusters was never really conceived as a multi-film project. In fact, at this point in cinematic history, little was. Sure, there was Star Wars, but even its initial run was just George Lucas throwing everything in the wall to see what would stick and hoping for a sequel. Despite Venkman's protestation in the original film that the quote, franchise rights alone will make us rich beyond our wildest dreams, no one, not Ackroyd, Ramus or otherwise, had actually considered what that might look like on screen. The potential was there, with rich history crafted for the characters and the actors' extraordinary chemistry amongst themselves, but it was dormant. So when the opportunity presented itself, the creators were somewhat caught off guard. Ackroyd had ideas, of course, and they were as grandiose as his first draft of the Progenitor. There were talks of sending the Ghostbusters overseas to Scotland, where Dana Barrett had been whisked away by an evil entity. There were fairy rings, an underground society, and a 2,000 mile long pneumatic tube. In Ackroyd's own words, it was quote, really too far out, too inaccessible. By the time he and Ramis had created something workable of this, Murray was committed to the Christmas film, Scrooged, and conversely, once Murray was available, the script had gone back in for more rewrites. This wasn't all that plagued the project either. Behind the scenes at Columbia Pictures, things were even more chaotic. New chairman David Putnam was reportedly uninterested in developing big budget sequels favoring smaller, or art house style projects that appealed to what he called the world market. While Ivan Reitman would later assert that the five-year delay between the initial film and its follow-up was not exactly, or entirely at least, Putnam's fault, the chairman wasn't helping things either. Compounded by Putnam's bizarre decision to announce in April 1987, the Ghostbusters 2 was going into production that November. Which was news to Reitman and his cast and crew, as this had not been discussed with them in advance. Not surprisingly, Putnam was soon replaced in his role at Columbia. But eventually, the stars aligned and the Ghostbusters were back. Well, all except for that out-of-business stuff from earlier, of course. The sequel would see the team once again coming together to investigate a river of mysterious, mood-altering slime running underground through New York City, powered by, and powering, the haunted portrait of a long-dead medieval tyrant sorcerer named Vigo the Carpathian. Since the events of the first film, Dana Barrett and Peter Bankman have gone their separate ways, another stroke of bad luck for the heroes, leaving Dana to have a baby with another man. Her son, Oscar, then becomes the target of Vigo's ghostly magic, as the latter believes he can return to Earth by possessing the child. Naturally, the Ghostbusters jump into action, find a way to animate the Statue of Liberty, no, really, and stop Vigo, if you'll pardon the pun, dead in his tracks. At a glance, Ghostbusters 2 follows a fairly typical movie sequel formula. Bigger, better, and more. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was big, but the Statue of Liberty stomping through the streets of New York? Even bigger. The Ectomobile was great, but Ecto-1A with its electronic message boards and extra gizmos and doodads? Even better. There's an often-referenced nitpick that in the first film, the Ghostbusters only actually bust, that is, contain and trap, a single ghost on camera, that being the one that would eventually be known as Slimer. But even in a montage dedicated to ghostbusting, it's mostly just footage of the guys running around the city in their equipment. Ghostbusters 2 rectifies this by dedicating its montage almost exclusively to trapping a myriad of wayward spirits, including the now-infamous Central Park Jogger Ghost. Bigger, better, and more. But would it translate to the box office? Looking strictly at cost versus earnings, the answer is yes. The first Ghostbuster sequel would ultimately pull in $215 million in its theatrical run against a budget of around $40 million. Many fans also cite the film as their favorite in the series, mostly due to the previewing establishment. Despite the fact that the ensuing five years between the original and Ghostbuster 2 seemingly wiped the slate clean, these are characters and concepts that no longer need introduction by the sequel, which gives the film more time to devote to their actions instead of setups. But generally speaking, this is where the good news ends. As the sequel to the highest grossing comedy of all time, Ghostbusters 2 was saddled with massive expectations that it simply did not, and some might argue could not, achieve. Even before taking into account that the summer of 1989 was absolutely bursting with blockbusters, including seminal hits like When Harry Met Sally, Honey I Shrunk the Kids, and Tim Burton's classic Batman, The Ghostbusters' return to the big screen was expected to surpass its predecessor, a movie that spent seven full weeks at number one in theaters. Ghostbusters 2 managed one week atop the charts. The next weekend after its debut, Batman dethroned the Busters, and The Boys in Grey never reclaimed the top spot that summer. The studio declared it a failure, and thus, so did everyone else. Aside from the financials, Ghostbusters 2 created a much bigger problem for the franchise, friction among its cast. Bill Murray might have been described as eccentric or aloof on the set of the first film, but even viewers of the second could tell Peter Venkman had checked out and left the lights on. Murray had been famously critical of the sequel in its wake, going so far as to say he was outfoxed by being presented with a script that was drastically different than the one they shot. Naturally, this created a rift among the Ghostbusters, with Murray on one side and basically everyone else on the other. It is worth noting, however, that Ernie Hudson was frustrated with both sides. As writers, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd had reduced Hudson's part as Winston Zeddemore two films in a row at this point at the behest of the studio, but again, those requests were made in service of giving Murray's Venkman more screen time. With contextually bad numbers at the box office, a resounding shrug of indifference from critics and moviegoers alike, and a burgeoning blame game behind the scenes, Ghostbusters 2 carries with it a legacy of disappointment. Even those who genuinely prefer the film to the original cannot deny it was objectively not a net positive for the franchise. Little did they know that the series' next theatrical foray would take 27 years to make it to the big screen, and it wouldn't make things any easier. For what it's worth, the Ghostbusters didn't disappear from the public consciousness between 1990 and now, it was quite the opposite, in fact. For starters, an animated series titled The Real Ghostbusters, to differentiate it from various other cartoon projects of the past titled Ghostbusters, had begun in 1986 after the success of the original film, which was broadly used as a backstory for the animated series. It was widely regarded as one of the best tie-in series of its time, high praise in an era of shows like He-Man and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Not only was the real Ghostbusters well-produced in terms of visuals, but it also boasted an impressive voice cast. Despite not retaining any of the film actors, notable voices like Maurice LaMarche, Lorenzo Music, and even Arsenio Hall lent their talents to the show. This, along with storylines that were just mature enough to tread the line between an adult-oriented program and one for children, gave the animated series an air of credibility in a time when many cartoons existed only to sell toys. Make no mistake though, Ghostbusters toys were definitely sold and by the thousands. Ultimately, the real Ghostbusters came to an end in 1991 after five seasons, but it created an impressive legacy among Ghostbusters media and helped take off some of the edge from Ghostbusters 2's lukewarm reception. The animated adventures would continue once again in 1997, a time in which any and everything was labeled extreme, from potato chips to professional wrestling. Appropriately then, Extreme Ghostbusters featured an alt-rock cover of Ray Parker Jr.'s iconic theme song and attempted to modernize the franchise, introducing for the first time ever new, canonical Ghostbusters. As with many cartoons of the late 90s, the heroes were a ragtag group of visibly diverse kids led by Egon Spangler, who was the only remaining active member of the original team, which would then prove to be ironic in a very bittersweet way many years later. Unfortunately, Extreme Ghostbusters was unable to recapture the magic of its predecessor much in the same way the two films were associated. The latter was poorly scheduled too early in the day for tweens and didn't really do anything new with the property, as the Kid Busters proved not quite interesting enough to hook their intended audience. The show ran for a single season, though an admittedly impressive 40 episodes, before it was cancelled. Throughout this time, a third Ghostbusters movie was actually considered, and fairly often, It was Dan Aykroyd who helmed most of this talk, as he was regularly asked during interviews for other projects about when the Ghostbusters would be back. Ever the optimist, Aykroyd seemed confident the next installment of the franchise was essentially inevitable despite the failings of Ghostbusters 2, in fact he almost immediately began discussing the idea he'd had for its story. According to Aykroyd, at various points in its development, Ghostbusters 3 would have seen the return of most, if not all, of the team, Murray was the notable exception at times given his disdain for the original sequel, and their venture into something called Manhelton, anotherworldly another version of Manhattan that was beginning to intrude upon our reality. In true fashion to its creator, this was something of a wild concept. Harold Ramus would attempt to tamp down, but his efforts were moot. For a variety of reasons, from scheduling to disinterest, the project never exactly got off the ground. In fact, for many years, the most agreed-upon third entry in the original series was not a movie at all. It was a video game, and while it was certainly not the series' first foray into interactive entertainment, it was decidedly the best. Released in 2009 on all major platforms at the time, Ghostbusters the video game was nothing short of a minor miracle, if only because it managed to bring back all four of the principal actors to voice their original characters, among others. This would eventually prove to be Harold Ramus' final performance as Dr. Spengler, as he sadly passed in 2014. It also paid homage to the groundwork laid for it by the previous entries in the franchise and treated them with reverence, picking up where Ghostbusters 2 left off as a fully complete, entirely realized, brand new story in that series. The game takes place in 1991, as the Ghostbusters hire a fifth new recruit, charmingly dubbed The Rookie, who serves as a player surrogate and a silent protagonist. Spectral activity is on the rise again and over the course of the story, the team tackles challenges new and old, including the previously unseen Evo Shandor, who orchestrated the events of the first film off-screen. It even ends by once again hinting there's more to come, with the original team sending The Rookie off to start their own Ghostbusters franchise in another city. The game received solid praise among critics and audiences alike, and after a remastered re-release in 2019, it sold over 3 million units worldwide. After years of disappointments, this was a win the Ghostbusters, both in canonical terms and in regards to their creators, desperately needed. The video game medium allowed Ackroyd and Ramus to try things with the series that simply weren't feasible on film. It was almost as though creating the game was a cathartic process that allowed the writers, Aykroyd in particular, to flush out their system, so to speak. The pressure was off. Most of the cast echoed a general sentiment that if this was the final Ghostbusters project tied to the original production, they were satisfied with what they'd done, and whatever came next could be the start of something fresh. In 2016, someone else would attempt exactly that. The Inquest was written, researched, and produced by me, Hunter Hendricks, with music provided royalty-free. Check out the full slate of Podzilla 1985 podcasts, from tabletop RPG playthroughs on PZ85 Plays, to the weekly top fives on Podzilla After Dark, and all of our great specials, like discussions on the paranormal on I Want to Believe, right now at podzilla1985.com. You can also keep up with the network on our Facebook page, and subscribe to our shows on your favorite podcasting service. And keep your ears tuned for part two of the Inquest Ghostbusters.